This is what it says. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, come before you this evening, and as we get into your word, I pray that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would help us to understand your word, that we would be able to apply it to our lives, Lord, to understand the calling that you've given to us as believers. Lord, I pray that you would do that this evening. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, recently, uh, as we've come into the spring, We've had some problems in our yard. We've had these moles that are just like, they're just digging away. Like, welcome to Tennessee. All right. And so uh, just, they're unbelievable. I've been doing all kinds of research. You know, I'm not familiar with moles after living in Thailand for 10 years. It's like, uh, I'm familiar with snakes. You know, over in Thailand, we had a lot of them. I found out you can use a four iron on them. They work really well. Um, You, uh, four irons work really well. Especially, no, I'm sure, I won't say that. All right, now, um, the four irons work good. Uh, then we dealt with birds while we were over there. Uh, what's weird in Thailand is around the houses, they will put tile around your house. And we used to have these birds that would just sit on our house, and there would just be poop every, like all over the tiles, all over. So if you walk around your house, it's just nasty. And so what I did is I invested in a BB gun that had a scope on it. Like I had one of our ladies that worked at our house. Uh, she went and got it, and actually she brought it on a bus. Like she carried this, looked like a rifle. You could never do that here. Um, so she brought it to our house, and it was all good because I would go out, and I would shoot these birds off the side of our house. That's good in any country except for Thailand where that's their aunt or uncle that you just shot, you know, off the side of their house. So, you know, you don't do that as well. And, uh, you know, I was doing all of this research, you know, how do you get rid of these moles? And I came across an article that was interesting. Research shows that a lot of people are willing to pay a lot of money to get rid of pests. For instance, 24% of adults will pay an exterminator to get rid of spiders. 27% of adults will pay exterminators to kill ants. 56% will pay to get rid of mice. Uh, 58% will pay to get rid of roaches, and listen to this, 90% of people will pay to get rid of termites. All right, not shocking, but when I was thinking about that in relationship to 1 Peter, most people, you know, they'll pay to get rid of these pests that, that infiltrate their house to get rid of them. They'll do whatever it takes. But there are also spiritual pests that invade our hearts every single day, It comes from our culture around us. And while we would pay to get rid of termites and and pests that infiltrate our house, a lot of times we'll all but ignore the pests that infiltrate and invade our hearts. And as we come into the book of 1 Peter, we find that Peter, he's writing to believers uh, that are in modern day, uh, nowadays they would be in Turkey. They've been scattered because of persecution And what we've studied up to this point is he's just unfolded for these believers the great salvation that God has given to us and persecuted. What he does is he's writing to these believers that have been scattered because of persecution. 
And he's telling them that your culture is very corrupt around you. Uh, it's easy for us to think that nowadays is the worst of times, but in actuality, when you go back to those times of these early believers, it was far worse for them. I mean, none of us have to worry about going out and, and being killed because of our faith, not in our country. But these believers were being persecuted, and there was corruption all around them. There was evil. And what Peter begins to do is he unpacks God's calling on their life. As a result of this great salvation that you've been given, here's God's calling on your life. Those that have, have been uh, given a lot, they're what? You're responsible for a lot. And so what he begins to tell them is he's, he's unpacking for them. How do you stay clean, spiritually speaking, in a culture that is morally corrupt? Don't you think that's a good question for us to be asking ourselves? When there's uh, wickedness and evil that's all around us, how is it that you can be pure? Because when God saved you, we, we've noticed that uh, what we've been through here is this. He's just written about our salvation and that it was a theme of the prophets. It was a theme of the apostles. It was also a, a, the salvation was something looked at by the angels. They, they longed to understand, you know, our salvation because they've never been saved. And so after that point, he begins to transition in. Verse 13 is a, a transitional verse. Look at it. Verse uh, 13, it says, Wherefore... So he's connecting everything that you've studied up to this point to a, a new thing that he's going to be teaching. He's shifting from teaching you about beliefs, and he's going to ben, begin to teach us about behavior. And specifically, he's going to tell us what your calling is as a believer. And this is, if I was going to summarize it for you, it's simply this. Be holy, because I'm holy. And that's what it, the calling is for every believer, to be holy. He stops uh, st stating facts and he begins to talk about what God's calling is on your life. There's a calling for us as believers to be holy. Despite the culture, despite the environment that you've been put in, the calling is still the same, to be holy. Now the root word for holy means this, it means to be different. Different from your former life, different from the people that are around you. You see, the call to holiness is a call to a life that's completely different. It's set apart. It's unlike anything else around it. So the question that we're looking at this evening is this. How can we be holy when things are corrupt all around us? And... Um, while we deal with this, this question, it's important for us to understand, when you were saved, you were justified. God declared you righteous in his sight. From that very moment, you're, you're clean before God. You're positionally righteous. But understand the fact is, as a believer, you are not practically righteous. And what that means is this. You're not righteous in, this, in the sense of your day-to-day -day living. Now, as far as God, your position in Christ... When God looks at you from the moment that you're saved, you're positionally righteous. God no longer sees your sin. He sees his son, Jesus Christ. But in relationship to your progressive sanctification, that's what we're dealing with tonight. The fact is, from the moment that you were saved, you were put in a process where God is molding you and transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. 
And so when we're talking about the call to holiness, Peter's teaching us about that process that we've been put into, that he is going to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. So how do we do that when culture is corrupt? Would you agree that it's very difficult? You look at what's, per, like, what's being put out on television, look at what's going on in media, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to, to live a holy life. So how do you do it? Peter gets very, very practical for us. And so let's look at what he teaches. First of all is this, get a handle on your own thought life. Get a handle on your thought life. Verse 13, wherefore gird up the loins of your mind. Now you look at that and you're like, what in the world does that mean? How do you gird up the loins of your mind? Um, how do you do that? Well, some translations, let's give, uh, another translation states it this way, prepare your mind for action. That's a good translation, but it's a figure of speech. Uh, for Jewish people, they would have understood what Peter meant by this. When he says, gird up the loins of your mind, back in those days, you understand that their clothing wasn't anything like ours, uh, you know, newsflash, all right? So uh, they used to wear these robes, these long flowing robes, and if they wanted to run or if they were going to fight in a battle, what did they have to do? You can't run with a, a, a dress on, right, ladies? I'm, I don't know, but that's what I've been told. All right, and so you, uh, you, you take, they would take these robes up and they would tuck it into their belt. That was called girding up their loins. They would take their robe up and it would, you know, they would tuck it down into that belt so that there wasn't any entanglements. They would be able to run freely without having anything that would hold them back. And so when he says that uh, you're to roll up, it's basically the idea of rolling up your sleeves. Get prepared. Get, don't have any entanglements. Have nothing that's going to set you back. Uh, Jewish people, if you were to go back to the time when they were in Egypt, uh, this term is used very frequently. Back, uh, if you look at the time when they were celebrating the Passover for the first time, uh, they were there in Egypt and God told them that they were to slaughter a lamb and they were to take the blood and they were going to put it on the doorposts of their house. You remember that? Well, back in Exodus 12, verse 11, this is what it says. And thus shall ye eat it, and with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Well, why were they supposed to gird up their loins? Why was it they, would have to, they were supposed to have their staffs in, in their hands? They were supposed to have no entanglements from the moment that the, the, the death angel would pass over and then finally Pharaoh would release them to go into the land uh, or, or to leave Egypt and go into the promised land, into the wilderness. What happens is, is they were supposed to be ready to go. They were supposed to be prepared. Nothing that would hold them back. And so Peter is taking the idea of clothing and he's shifting it into the idea of your thought life. So, and the way that they would gird their loins up, they would take that robe and they would tuck it into their belt. Peter's basically saying this, take your belt and, and, and tie it around your mind. He's saying, uh, guard it, protect it, be ready to do battle there. And that's very practical advice. Protect your mind. Why is it that when Peter is discussing the issue of holiness that he begins with the mind. Understand, folks, that every battle for holiness always begins where? It always begins in your mind. If you want to begin to live holy, you have to think holy. 
The Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. The battle for purity, the battle for living pure in a corrupt world always begins with your thought life. One of the most practical things you could give a new believer is to teach them, how do you fight sin? Well, if you want to fight sin in in your daily life, it always begins with your thought life. Christian living is learning to deal with sin on the thought level. And you know what our problem is in our culture is a lot of times we want to focus on actions, don't we? Or what you did right there, that was wrong. But understand, every time we sin, it always began where? It always began with your thoughts. Every single time. What he's teaching is learn to judge your thoughts. Learn to confess them to God. Learn to take every thought captive. That's what 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says. It says this, Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing into captivity, what? Every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's what Peter is talking about here. It's the ability to to process your thought life with a filter that will honor God in every thought. You know, uh, that's one of the most difficult things you can do, right? It's not just outburst of anger, it's the thoughts of anger that you have to deal with. It's not just lusting in your mind, it's dealing with uh, the, the thoughts of lust that come into your mind. And what Peter's saying is that he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Tie a belt around it. Don't have any loose entanglements. Loose thinking leads to loose living. That's basically what he's saying. And so if you want to live clean in the midst of an unclean culture, you can't have loose thinking. We could go through example after example, couldn't we, of people in the Bible that made mistakes. Who can you think of? Who do you think of? Just name one person. David, that's one of the first ones everybody names. You have David. We could go through on and on and on, but no sin is committed that isn't first entertained in the thoughts of the mind. And so, folks, if you want to battle for holiness in your life, where does it begin? Always begins in the mind with your thought life. One author put it this way, and I like his wording. He said, tolerate temptation, manage sin, Make room for just a couple of ants. It's just a few termites in the garage. They aren't inside the house. What can they do? Listen, those little invaders will, will totally destroy your ability to live a pure life. So guard your mind. The second thing is this. Get particular about influences around you. The very next word, look at this, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and what? Be sober. Whenever you hear that word, be sober, you immediately begin to think of what? Drinking alcohol, okay? Now, it has the idea of wineless, and it does have a picture of of drinking, but that's not what he's talking about. Uh, When he says be sober, what he really means is that when a person drinks alcohol, what does it do? It clouds their judgment. And so it, 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 it keeps them from being alert, from making sound decisions. And so when Peter says, be sober, what he's telling them is that you need to be careful of anything that would cloud your judgment. Is there anything in our society and in our culture that can cloud our judgment? There's a lot. 
Peter uses the same word again in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Look at this. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. What's he comparing it to? It's a picture of a lion that's outside. And if you knew that there was a lion outside, how would you walk? Would you walk around like not even concerned about what's going on around you? No, you would be concerned. You would be alert. You would be looking for how it's, it's, it's going to attack you. You would be looking out for yourself, for your safety, right? And he's saying that Satan is just like that lion. And he says, so you be sober. That's the idea of being alert. And folks, there is no greater time uh, right now for us as believers that we need to be sober, that we need to be alert to the things that cloud our judgment. Peter, in essence, is saying, you're living in enemy territory right now. The culture, the evil culture that's corrupt around you is, is trying to impact you and trying to influence you so that your judgment isn't sound. I, uh, in all honesty, one of the things, uh, coming back from Thailand as a missionary, is I thought, man, Thai people really don't have a really good understanding about the Bible. They don't have a good filter for understanding things from a biblical worldview. You know what I found back in the States? We have the same problem. We have allowed our culture to do what? To begin to conform us into its mold. It's begin to, we no longer think from a biblical perspective. We begin to think through the lenses of our culture. And what Peter's saying is that... Uh, it's clouding our judgment. There's, and, and where we would look out for our children, right? There, there's certain things we don't allow our children to, to come into contact, right? Like we would, we would protect them from social media. We would protect them from certain TV shows, certain movies. But what about ourselves? The things that uh, can influence our children can just as easily influence us, can it not? So as a result of it, he's saying this, exercise self-control. Be alert to how the world wants to begin to mold you into its same system. And so as a result, if you're going to be alert, there's probably certain people you shouldn't be around, right? There's probably certain movies you probably shouldn't watch. There's probably certain types of movie, mu music you probably shouldn't listen to. Not, not because of you're trying to be a legalist, not because you're, you're just like wanting to shut down all the outside world. We're in the world. We just don't want the world inside of us. And that's what Peter's saying, guys, is that, hey, be alert. The world wants to cloud your judgment. And guys, if you're not aware of that in your own heart, I mean, you're just, we have to be careful of how the world, it, it comes into our thinking. It clouds your spiritual judgment. Let's look at this next part. Get focused on the future. Now, notice all of these ideas that Peter's bringing out is very practical for living out a holy life. I mean, it's very practical. Look at this towards the end of verse 13. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it, we, we read that, and it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a, a weird reading for us. Let me kind of break it down for you. What it means is this. Fix your hope completely 
on the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's literally what it's saying. It means to pin your hope on it. Now, if you have a pen, you might circle that word hope to the end. That word hope to the end means to completely set your hope on it without any reservation. Like if I was going to illustrate it for you, if you were to take a chair and you were going to put it up here on the stage, the idea of of hope to the end, it means to I'm going to fully 100% put all of my weight down on the chair. And so Peter's saying this, completely put your hope in the grace that's coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what does he mean by that? To understand it, you have to have a biblical understanding of the word hope. What does it mean to hope? Hope is the Christian's attitude towards the future. Let me make it a little bit more practical. Hope is is the similar substance of faith. Faith is trusting and believing God for something that he's done, correct? It's believing and trusting God for something that he's done. But hope is believing and trusting God for something he's yet to do. It's a little bit different. So hope believes God for something that he's done, or or faith trusts God and believes God for something he's already done. Hope believes and anticipates something God is yet to do. So if we're going to put it in a way that makes it a little bit easier, faith accepts and hope anticipates, okay? Faith accepts things that God has done. It believes God and, and hope it anticipates the things that God is yet to do. It believes God for the future. You could put it that way. If I was going to illustrate it, we could look at Romans chapter 4. We have a little bit of time. I'm going to have to rush through this. Look at Romans chapter 4. And it's illustrated in the life of Abraham. Romans chapter 4. And I'll read a few passages here for you. Romans chapter 4 verses uh, 17 through 20. If you open up your Bibles there. And I want you to notice what the Bible teaches us about hope through the life of Abraham. Verse 17, it says this, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those which be not as though they were, who against hope did what? Believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. So what you're following along is it's talking about Abraham. And it's saying that what? God had made a promise to Abraham that what would happen? He would have a child. He'd be the father of many nations. Here he is. He's a hundred years old. And what is he doing? It's saying he's hope against hope. Why? Because hundred-year-old guys, they don't have babies. It's It's really difficult. And he looked at his wife and how old she was, and he's sitting there thinking, eh. And what's going is, is that he's believing God for his promise, right? He's anticipating the promise that God made to him. And look at verse 20. What does it say? He staggered not at the promise of God, though uh, through unbelief, but was what? Strong in faith, giving glory to God. So what is it talking about? Hope is the idea of faith in something that's yet to happen. Now, I want you to look back at verse 13, and I want you to notice specifically what Peter's doing here. 
he's connecting the idea of hope to what? He says, hope complete. Put your hope completely in what? In the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. He's saying this. Put your hope completely, anticipate, believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is going to come back again, even when it doesn't look like it. Remember what happened with Abraham? He has this promise from God, and he's like, is it really going to happen? I'm getting pretty old. And it says that he hoped against hope. He had a belief in the promise of God that one day God would bring it to happen, right? And so in the same way, what what Peter's saying here is this. Hope to the end. Put your hope completely in the grace that you're going to receive when Jesus Christ comes back. You want to know one of the most important things you can do as a believer? Believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back again. Believing the return of Jesus Christ, anticipating the return. Like Pastor said, the imminent return that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. Why is that important to holy living? Let me ask you a question. If you knew today that Jesus Christ is going to come back tomorrow, is there anything in your life that you would change? How many of you would be willing to just be honest with me? We're not going to lie here in church, right? How many of you would be willing to say, hey, there's some things that I would change if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? What Peter's saying is that put your hope completely in. Believe with all of your heart. Jesus Christ is coming back. And he's going to be coming back. Not just coming back. He's coming back with grace. And so when you believe that with all of your heart, what's that going to do? You're going to live holy. You're going to live different. That's what Peter's saying. So folks, isn't that good? I mean, like Peter's saying really practical things here. The fact of the matter is, though, is that a lot of us, we don't live like we really believe Jesus is coming back. If we were just going to be honest, right? But I want you to notice something that you can't skip in this verse. Notice this. He doesn't say hope in Christ's return. That's not what he says. He says hope to the end in the grace that is being brought to you at Christ's return. Why is he mentioning grace? Well, follow along with me. Peter is talking to who? People that are going through persecution. And what he's telling them is this is the motivation for pure living. What's the motivation, folks? Grace. Grace is the motivation for pure living. These people were going through the hardest circumstances. And Peter's saying this. Put your hope completely in the grace that you're going to receive at Christ's return. Now, why is that such an encouragement? What were you saved by? Grace. It was not by your works. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't if you wanted to. And what he's saying is that if you think that the grace you received at salvation is good, Can you imagine the grace that you're going to find at Christ's return when he comes back for you? You want to know what motivates you to live out a pure life? It's the fact you've been graced. You've been graced beyond any measure, beyond anything you could ever compare it to. God has graced you not just in your salvation in the past, but also going to be in your glorification in the future. 
the things that are beyond measure, beyond any description we could ever give to you this evening. You've been graced. So that's a big calling on your life. You understand, right? To live out a pure and holy life in a, in, a, in a world that's corrupt. That's exactly what he's talking about. Listen, folks, uh, right living is directly connected to your belief on whether Jesus Christ is coming back. If you don't believe Jesus Christ is coming back, you won't live pure. You'll live however you want. You see, that's what Peter's pointing at. Let's go to this next thing. Get rid of old habits. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance. I love this passage. It's really good. Peter's explaining the obligation of a believer. We talked about that. But based on the salvation that you've received, the phrase is, he uses the phrase, as obedient children. It's a Hebrew expression that basically means this. The, the characteristic, the overwhelming characteristic of a child of God is what characteristic? It's obedience. It's the most basic thing as a believer. And what Peter is saying is this. The, the characteristic of a true child of God is obedience. That's why he says, as obedient children. You might even write out to the side of that. That's your identification in Christ. Your position and who you are in Christ is that's your calling, obedient children. That's the purpose. The implication is that God, our Heavenly Father, is, He's the one that we obey. It's His Word that tells us how we're supposed to live. It's the conditioned response of a true child of God. A child of God always responds to God in what? Obedience. Why? Well, from the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what happened? You received immediately what? The Holy Spirit into your life. And the Holy Spirit grows you and, and begins to convict you that you need to obey the things of God. Look at what John 1.12 says. It says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the power to, what? to become the children of God. When a person saved their place in the family, they're given the Holy Spirit that produces certain fruits in your life. And one of the fruits is what? Obedience. You know, uh, in my house, I got three kids. And one of the things that, that's interesting to me, I love watching them because all three of the kids have different characteristics, different traits. They like different things. They do different things. They're just totally different. Uh, my daughter Addison, she likes to play with dolls, like anything dressing up. Like she's totally 100% girl to the core. I mean, that's what she loves. Branson, he like, he's into Legos. He wants to build things. He wants to be a builder. I mean, but he's quiet and he's shy. Now Judson, he broke the mold. Like th that guy, uh, he wants to be an entertainer. Like we could be in the middle of a family movie night. And I remember one time we're watching a family movie. Uh, my wife had gotten him a Halloween costume. And uh, he's got this, you know, what was it, babe? It was a, a giraffe. That's right. And we're watching a movie, and he just pops out in front of the TV, and he's dancing away in this giraffe outfit just trying to make everybody die laughing. 
And like it had, that giraffe had some cheeks on it. Sorry. And he's like shaking that thing back and forth. And I mean, we're just dying laughing. Like, what in the world is up with this kid? Who, which side is it, Martin or Hill? I'm just joking. All right. And uh, so uh, we still haven't come to a conclusion. All right. But here's the deal. Like, you're looking at that. And like every child is totally different. Different traits, different things that make them, you know, totally unalike. But when it comes to the child of God, the passage Peter is teaching is this. You want to know the the overwhelming characteristic of a child of God? Peter's painting the picture and he's saying, you want to know who really is a child of God? It's obedience. You see, we live in a culture that tells us what? Pick and choose. If you like that certain thing that it teaches, okay. If you don't like it, then you don't have to accept it. You can live however you want to. But the only problem with that is, biblically speaking, there's nothing in the Bible that tells you you can pick and choose. You never see any passage that says you can just pick the things that you want to obey and you can ignore the other things. Peter's saying this, that you don't choose. You're a child and he's the father. He's the one that gives the commands to the children. And I don't know how it worked in your house, but in my house, what dad said went. And it's the same way in God's family. We are called to be obedient children. That is the driving force of purification. And and, and holiness is this. He calls you to live holy as obedient children of God. You don't get to pick and choose. But notice he's going to contrast it now. Uh, What does that look like? Look at verse 14, the second part. Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. That word fashioning, it, it, it comes from the same word that means to conform. To conform. If you looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you look at that word conformed, it means to be squeezed into a mold. And what Peter's saying, listen to this, folks. He's saying, don't be squeezed back into your former self. That's what Peter's saying. Don't go back to the same things you used to struggle with. Don't go back to the old way you used to live things. Why? Because your identity is what? You're a child of God. You're called to obedience. He's connecting holy living with understanding your identity in Christ. You are a child of God. And when you understand you're a child of God, you're not going to go back to the former lust. You're not going to go back to the former lifestyle. It's perfectly illustrated in the Old Testament. You remember Moses rescued them out of Egypt and he takes them into the wilderness. Where did God want to take them? He wanted to take them to the promised land. Unfortunately, what was the problem? Even though they were taken out of Egypt, they were still doing what? They were still trying to live like like Egyptians, like slaves. God had this new life for them, this promised land that he, he wanted to give to them. But the problem was is that he had taken them out of Egypt, but Egypt was still very much inside the hearts of every single one of them. And folks, that's exactly what he's talking about. Look, he says, I like when Peter calls it the former lust. Why does he call it the former lust? The idea, the, what Peter's getting across is what? It's what you used to be. 
And he's also giving you hope by saying it can be broken. You see, the call to holiness is that you understand that the process that God has you in is he's wanting to gradually and consistently mold you into Jesus Christ. The call to holiness, folks, is this, is that God doesn't want you to be today what you were a year ago. I like what Peter says at the very end of this. He says, look at the verse. According to the former lust in your what? Ignorance. His point is this. Yeah, you, you, you didn't know it before, but you do now. You didn't know what I had for your life before, but now you do. You understand your calling. You know what God's called you to. Hey, listen, go back to your identity to who I called you in Jesus Christ. I called you to be obedient children. Don't go back to the former life that I died to free you from. And folks, uh, I can't tell you how many times we look at the Christian life as being something that when you're saved, that's it. That is not a biblical perspective. From the time that you were saved, that was just the beginning point in your process of sanctification. God wants you to gradually, consistently be conforming to Christ in every single area of your life. And so, well, you know what a lot of people say, well, when, when my kids get in trouble, you know what their number one thing they go to? They always say, well, uh, the other kids, they do this. Other kids, their parents let them do, that's great, but they're not my kids. And you know what God wants to say to you? Our comparison is this. We're called to be holy as he is holy. It has nothing to do with anybody else. The process of sanctification of becoming more like Christ has nothing to do with other believers in the church. You can compare yourself to them all day. That's not the standard. The standard is his holiness. If you're a child of God, you bear a name. You're a child of God. And that ought to change the way that you live because it reflects on him. Let's look at this last thing and we'll be done. Lastly, get serious about your calling. Verse 15 and 16. Let's look at this. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. One of Peter's favorite topics in this book is the idea of calling. He uses it six times. Six times. Now, why is it that he's talking about God's holiness? There is no other attribute in the Bible where God elevates it to the third degree. What I mean by that is this. There's no other place, no other characteristic or trait of God that he elevates where he repeats it three times. You'll never find in the Bible where it says God is love, love, love. You'll never find where it says that God is eternal, eternal, eternal. You only see that it says that God is holy, 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 meaning he's separate. He's completely different. He's not like us. He's complete holiness. Or if you wanted to use a big word, he's transcendent. He's beyond us. This thrice holy God is puts the calling in the life of a believer 
to be holy, to be different. Now, why does he call us to holiness? I wrote, uh, if you look in your handout, I gave you a quote. And have you ever been reading in a book before and you just read a statement and you're like, there's no way I can say it any better than that? D.A. Carson, a theologian, I want you to, I put it in your notes and I want to read it to you because I can't say it better. This is what he had to say. Christians do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and we call it faith. We cherish indiscipline, and I like this, and he call it relaxation. We slide toward godlessness and we convince ourselves we've escaped legalism. Wow. Good words. What D.A. Carson is saying is that there's a natural bent inside the heart of every believer to do what? To drift away from holiness. To be pulled into the, the, the mold of the world around us. Do you not feel it? The world is constantly tempting you, trying to get you to mold, mold you into its image. But here's the question, and this is what we have to ask, and, and we're going to be done with this. What does holiness look like? Because I don't, I'm convinced it's not what we think it looks like. Look at what it is. First of all, it's comprehensive. Verse 16. It's not what you think. Look at verse 16. So be ye holy in all manner of, what, conversation. Now, some of you are like, man, I, I haven't said a cuss word in a month. I, I'm good. That's not what it's, it's not talking about your speech. The idea here in the word conversation is, in your, it's the idea of your conduct, your lifestyle. Those of you that thought you had a loophole, you don't, all right? Now you don't, okay, because now you know. Right out there, put that next to that word conversation. It's the idea of in your conduct or your lifestyle. What it means is this. Notice it says in all manner of conversation. What does that mean? Help me out. If it means in all manner of conduct, in all manner of your lifestyle, what does that mean? <laughs> every, every little piece. There's nothing, nothing left out whatsoever. Is that how Christians live? Oh boy, no. <laughs> Not even close. The areas that you know need to be changed, it includes that. The areas you don't know need to be changed, it includes that. It means that we're to pursue holiness in the workplace as well as the worship place. It means you're to pursue holiness uh, in your heart as well as in your home. It means that uh, there's no closet, there's no dark corners, there's no secret business deals, there's no filthy conversation, but because I have a calling on my life to pursue holiness in every inch of every part of my being. Does that cover everything? I, I can't come up with anything else. But every single area you're called to holiness, no matter what it is. Now, so we have an understanding of the word holiness. The word holiness, it comes from the word hagios. Hagios literally means this. It means separate or different. The Jewish people, they used to say that the temple is hagios. It's, it's holy. Why? Why was the temple holy? 
Was it because they used secret material to make it holy? No, it was just a different place. Their building was used for something different, the worship of the one true God. They used to use the word, uh, the Sabbath day is what? Holy. Why? It was different than any other day of the week. It was the day set aside to rest. They used to use the, the, the word Christian is, is holy. Why? Because we're supposed to be different from other people. How about this? I, I'm going to trick you guys. Better pay attention. All right. How about an holy matrimony? Is it because your wife is perfect? Oh, don't answer that. All right. In my case, yes. Oh, no, just kidding. All right. No, just joking. All right. Now, holy matrimony. Why? Because that is a different relationship than any other relationship. How about the Holy Bible? Because it's a different Bible. It's a different book than any other book. What's the point? The point is that holy, holiness is not uh, compartmentalized. It's comprehensive. Do you understand what I just said? It's not to be compartmentalized. It's not I'm holy and going to church. No, it's, it's either it's all or nothing. It's like holiness in every single detail of everything that you do, both with your children and with your spouse, both with the people that you deal business with, both with, uh, in your private life and the things that you look at, in, in your attitudes and your motives and everything that you do. It's holiness, every area. But notice it's not only comprehensive, but it's not new. It's not new. And this is the last thing. Verse 16, because it is written, be ye holy. Why? For I'm holy. Now, if you were to look in the Bible and you were to ask yourself, when's the, when's the first time that we come into this idea of holiness? One of the biggest books in all of the Bible that ta- deals with the area of holiness is the book of what? Leviticus. Peter is... If you were to go back to that in the Old Testament, when they, uh, the book of Leviticus is discussing what items, what, did, what topics is it going over? It's going over religious ceremonies, over the laws, over regulations. And what Peter is doing is that at the core, God's desire is that his people be, be, have a special relationship with him that's distinctively different. The reason why they had the ceremonial laws and the reason why they they had a Sabbath, the reason why they they did things differently than other people was what? It would identify them as what? They were Jewish. They were different. They weren't like other people. Now when Peter comes back in this passage and he begins to rephrase it again, what does he say? He drops out the ceremonial laws and the religious, you know, regulations, and he states the core principle of what God was teaching in the Old Testament. What is it? Be holy. Why? For I'm holy. You know what Peter's basically saying? If you don't like this, take it up with God. Because this started a, whole long, uh, started a long time ago. God's calling has always been to have a holy people. His standard has always been holiness. This isn't something brand new in the New Testament. This isn't something brand new that he's teaching to these, these believers that have been persecuted and scattered. He's saying God's, his standard, his, what he's called his people to has always been holiness. Why? Because in being different, you will be a portrait of Christ wherever you are. 
when you live differently and you don't conform to the world around you, you have a message that the world longs to hear. You want to know one of the reasons why Christians have lost our influence in our culture? Why? We're no longer different. Holiness isn't something that you create. I don't want us to misunderstand that. You don't create holiness. It's a person that you conform to. If you miss what I'm telling you at this point, you've missed the most important part. Listen, holiness is not a call to to a place. It's a call to a person. You can't become holy. You can't pursue holiness until you pursue, pursue a relationship with God. You can't be conformed to a person you don't know. I want to close by reading you this from another translation. The message does a, a pretty good job of telling us what the passage is trying to say. Let me read it to you in modern language. So roll up your sleeves and put your mind in gear. Be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming When Jesus arrives, don't lazily slip back into the old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You don't know any better then, but you do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a a way of life shaped, shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, now you be holy. You know, uh, it's said that back in the day, Alexander the Great, he, there was a soldier that was tried for deserting, deserting the, the soldiers in battle. When Alexander had that young man called in, Alexander, he said, what's your name? The young man, he spoke up, he said, my name's Alexander. Well, when he heard that, he's, the emperor looked at him and he's, with a stern eye and he said, soldier, change your behavior or change your name. Folks, I often wonder if maybe that's what God would want to say to us. Either change your behavior or change your name. You see, he's given us a great salvation. And he also calls us to live out holy. Why? It makes us different from everybody else. It sets us apart and it glorifies your Father in heaven. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before